I'm not going mad, 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 I'm not going mad. Welcome to Gatekeeper. A podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Welcome to Gatekeeper. I'm your host, Jamie Flam, and I am the Gatekeeper. Now, I need to start today's episode with a confession. You see, I've been calling in these intros the past few weeks. I show up, I ramble, I have Andrew put on some bells and whistles, sometimes literally, and then I call it a day. Well, guess what? I am back this week with a prepared diatribe on comedy. And if you hate prepared diatribes on comedy, I don't blame you, you can skip ahead to six minutes, 17 seconds to listen to a fun conversation I had with the always dapper Rick Jenkins, founder and booker of the renowned Comedy Studio in Boston, who shared many of his own rules of comedy that have helped shape his venue and the comedy that comes from it. All that, again, at six minutes, 17 seconds. But now a new gatekeeper segment that I like to call Howdy, I've got something to say about comedy or something else with Jamie Flam. Yeehaw! Howdy! Right now at the Hollywood Improv, I am booking an average of 150 shows a month between our main room and our smaller lab showroom. That's a lot of damn shows. There are a handful of shows that I get to produce, book, and curate myself, but the club still relies heavily on headliners and promoters to get butts and seats. So a big part of my job is reviewing show idea submissions from outside producers. So how do I choose what goes up and what does not? Well, for the main room, it's pretty easy. We need big, famous headlining comedians and 200 audience members in the room. If someone can help make that happen, we'll talk. The lab, on the other hand, is more of a playground. The 60-seat cabaret space has more show openings for producers, so it gets to be a little trickier. A lot of people think that I only want quirky theme shows in the room, and that's not entirely untrue. Right now, the lab hosts a comedy spelling bee, a comedy striptease, a comedy rap battle, improvisational music shows, variety shows, music shows, live podcasts, and even a comedy tarot reading show. I know there are plenty of detractors and purists out there who say a stand-up comedy club should feature, well, stand-up, and that anything else is a gimmick. Well, there are absolutely a lot of gimmicky shows in LA right now, as everyone is trying to make their shows stand out. And yes, sometimes they can be super hackneyed and we're just plain bad. But when done right, a good theme can elicit comedy from some of the best comedic minds in a totally new context for their fans. I believe comedy has evolved to the point that fans have a level of savviness that allows for more of these shows. And in my ongoing efforts to bring in new audiences to the club, I'm all for it. Of course, sometimes the premises don't translate. But at the end of the day, if it's a good show, people will come back. And if it's a bad show, people will not. I like to call this the if it's a good show, people will come back. If it's a bad show, people will not rule. But regardless of whether a show is a straight-up stand-up showcase or a comedy egg toss and sack race, the number one thing I demand as a booker is that the producers care about what they put on. That may seem like a given, but anyone who's performed on or regularly sees shows knows that's not always the case. I feel like there's an inevitable point in most comedians' careers where they feel like they're supposed to put on a show, or they're given the advice to put on a show so that they can trade for spots elsewhere. There's nothing inherently wrong with creating your own stage time, But when that is the only driving force behind a show, chances are it's not going to be very good. And most of the time, the turnout won't be great either. Having run and booked venues for over 10 years now, I've heard all the excuses. It was the Night of the People's Choice Awards. The LA Galaxy were playing. It was daylight savings time. Or weather. Only in LA is a slight drizzle an excuse for low turnout. 
But I get it. I used to make those excuses too. But then I made the discovery that when it comes to low attendance, the problem isn't usually lack of promotion. It's a lack of heart. When I talk to potential show producers, I ask them if they love their show. Is it the show of their dreams? Is it the show they've always wanted to put on? Is it a show that they would want to see, to be booked on? Because I am giving them access to a world-famous stage. I want it to be amazing, and I want people to be there to see it. And it doesn't matter when it happens. There have been times that we've had to ask the audience to sit closer to the stage on a Saturday night at 8 p.m., and we've had to turn people away on a Sunday night at 10 p.m. If the show is amazing and you put your heart into promoting it, it doesn't matter what time or day of the week it is. People will likely be there. Here's the thing. If you feel like you're asking people to do you a favor by coming to your show, then chances are you have a really shitty show. You should put so much love into your show that you feel you are doing people a favor by telling them about it. Like you have access to a special treasure chest and they're gold and rubies and pearls for all you tell. Cool. A show is an opportunity to create something special, something potentially life-changing, or at least an opportunity to get people out of their heads for a bit and a place to let talented friends and artists work on their craft. Those are always the stakes. A show should be a fucking show. Also worth noting, a good show poster never uses Comic Sans, and there are several other font no-nos. But that's a topic for another time. This has been Howdy! I've got something to say about comedy or something else with Jamie Flam. Yee-haw! Howdy! Before we get to the show, a little bit of treasure to share with you. Uh, starting Fridays in August here at the Hollywood Improv in the Lab, our first ever comedy egg toss and sack race show. You're going to love it. Your favorite comedians uh, telling jokes uh, with eggs on spoons in burlap sacks. It's the best. Tickets available at hollywood.improv.com. Here's Rick. Gatekeeper. Six minutes, 17 seconds. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Gatekeeper. I'm excited about the guest that sits before me right now. He's here all the way from Boston, Rick Jenkins. Hello. Welcome to the show. I'm a big fan. I've got notes. I have points. I have questions. I see this. Should we? Do you want to get started with me or should I? Uh, let's get started with you. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to engineer this train. For now, but then I'm going to let you take over and see what happens. All right. So give us the whole story. So you run the comedy studio in Boston, Harvard Square. Yep. Long um, long story short, in uh, 1979, I went on stage for the first time at a, a show in Buffalo. It was not an open mic because we didn't know how comedy was done back then. It was an hour of comedy followed by- How old by, were you in 1979? Uh, 18. Really? Yeah. You look young. Yeah. Well, thanks. Not yeah. that you're not young. I- <laughs> Yeah, and now everyone's Googling images of me saying, how, how old is this guy? Yeah, no, I just turned 55 and started doing comedy and they would have a jazz band play for an hour and then another hour of comedy because we didn't know that's not how it was done. Because the improv was just starting. Mm -hmm. It was just the thing how, What was in it New done? York. Like, it was weird to do an hour of jazz and then an hour of stand-up? Yeah, well, because it was more on a nightclub format. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, you come to this nightclub and you have a couple of drinks and then you leave and something's happening all the time. So I did 10 minutes with some really terrific people in Buffalo, starting out then. Uh, Rich Seisler, Dan Spencer, then became Robin Williams' assistant. Fritz Coleman, who is now the uh, weather guy here of in course, uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. So some really terrific people. In 86, I graduated college. And in Buffalo at the time, there were two comedy clubs. If you played one, you weren't allowed to work the other. Mm -hmm. So 
told my parents I was looking at grad schools and, uh, and long story short, ended up in Boston and, uh, started during the boom made, you know, that $125 for a middle act. I was always more comfortable as a host mm-hmm. than a closer or anything. And, uh, yeah. And then around 95 or so when the boom died, myself and a couple of friends were hanging out at this Chinese restaurant and catch a rising star had just closed. So Louis C.K., Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, David Cross, all those people had already had left Boston. That was the comedy, comedy connection or uh, catch, catch mm-hmm. rising stars franchise there. And those people all sort of left and I didn't have the resources to leave. So I started a, an open mic show on Sunday nights. And after a year, we moved it to Friday, Saturday, Sunday and started calling it the comedy studio. And that was 20 years ago. 20 years ago. And so, um, and it's become one of the, uh, the biggest or best clubs in this, in the country. Yeah. Well, it's, it's all showcase format. So we were really one of the first alternative clubs with us and Largo. I was very lucky that Eugene Merman, uh, finished college right around the time I was starting the club. So he got a lot of stage time and really ran things. And that got us our reputation and Brendan Small got picked up for home movies and he's now doing Metalocalypse. So it became through Eugene and just pluck, you know, a place that cool, interesting people wanted to go because, you know, the boom was over. The opener, yeah. middle headliner, now you had audience who had grown up on Evening at the Improv who were now in their 20s, not wanting to see a guy in his 60s talk about his mortgage. Right. So generationally, I've seen everything sort of switch, especially in Boston, because I moved here and you had Stephen Wright and Bobcat Goldthwait, and then you had um, Cross, Garofalo, C.K., then you had Burr, Patrice O'Neill, uh, DePaulo, Dane Cook, all those people, and then the folks from my place. Mm-hmm. So I've always had a, a long, long history of trying to understand the scene and how it's generational. At that time, how aware were you that there was this shift um, versus just you know kind of going with what felt good and what you liked? Was it, were you aware of Largo? Were you aware of what's happening in LA and New York at the time? Yeah, yeah, but I had started with all the, all the big clubs. So to me, it was... We, we were doing an alternative format because we couldn't afford to do a big format. Mm-hmm. We're saying, all right, sets are 10 minutes because I knew if I ask you to do 30, I have to pay you. Mm-hmm. So for, you know, the, the beginning of the club, it was all, Hey, we just want a place to perform. And so you, you were open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. And it was just dark the rest of the time. Yeah. Well, it's the third floor of a Chinese restaurant and What's on after, the second floor? Uh, a bar. Okay. It's a, a bar where they serve, huge scorpion bowls of, of liquor style. and it's right across the street from Harvard. So it's the heavy, it's a high volume college mm-hmm. uh, drinking establishment. And when we finish the show to this day, we put away all the tables and chairs and it becomes the Hong Kong stance club. Oh, wow. So that's why when a comedian goes over the light by two minutes, I, oh, I used to take it so personally, I would get so upset. I would punch the wall because I saw it as you're, you're trying to screw me. Because I've got to be out of here at 10 o'clock and you just took two minutes that weren't yours. From these kids, they want to dance. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when we weren't doing numbers, you know, the first five, six years, the bouncers would start putting away the tables and chairs while someone was still on stage saying, mm-hmm. no, it's 10 o'clock, you're done. So you still have to be out at 10 o'clock? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do one show, we start at eight and finish at 10. And is it seven nights a week now or is it just six? It is six. Yeah, six. We do magicians on Tuesday and then stand up Wednesday Magic through Tuesdays. Sunday. Yeah. And what is it? What, how do you, how would you describe the scene now in, in Boston and, and how the studio fits into all of that? Yeah. I think it's really terrific. We just had a, a 
big 300 seat club, well, for us, big 300 seat club called Laugh Boston open up on the waterfront and they're bringing in names. Um, and I'm seeing that change that now a name is someone who has a, a hot vine that I may never, never have heard of. Um, yeah, back in my day when Bill Hicks came to town, nobody in the general public knew who it was, but word gotten out on, on the scene. Now word is getting out, you know, through, oh, this guy's been on Conan or he's been on Comedy Central or, you know, which is something I want to ask you. Sure. Because especially with the lab, I always find that a, a, because we couldn't afford to bring in the big names that people would come to see, a lot of what I had to do was try to establish the brand and say, we developed a regular audience that comes once a month or once a week or whatever to see the comedy studio show. Mm -hmm. And maybe a, a big name will drop in or, or something and really build it on that. It seems like between the lab and the main room, you sort of have a, have to make that decision of, you know, is it, is are people coming here to see the comedy club or are they coming here to see that guy? I think more and more than ever, <clears throat> it is usually that guy or mm -hmm. that show. Just because I think the dynamics of um, comedy have changed mm -hmm. in LA, especially. Comedy store, you know, certainly because they have a little bit more control and consistency, um, where seven nights a week in at least one of their rooms, you know, you're going to get 10 to 15 headlining comics. Mm -hmm. Whereas here at the improv, um, because of, uh, you know, this is an industry club and mm -hmm. for uh, lots of reasons and lots of politics and, um, and Abby, who's just here talking about, you know, there's so many relationships that span, mm -hmm. you know, 50 years now. And um, so, you know, you might come one night and it's, it's uh, Louis CK and you might come the next night and it's you know an urban show and you might come the next night mm -hmm. and it's uh, a Vine star, <laughs> or, yeah. you know, someone like that's, that's big on YouTube that I've never heard of, but mm -hmm. they're selling, you know, 600 seats in three nights versus, you know, some, uh, someone that I deem a legend that we're yeah. scraping to get, you know, half a room full. Um, so I think, you know, for us, I, I've tried to put the, have the tactic. The lab is a little bit easier. I'm trying to build it more consistency mm -hmm. where if you can show up, you, you know, you're going to get a pretty good show um, or an amazing show. Or, or an interesting show. An interesting show. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And it's going to be more experimental, but I feel like in in this day and age, and at least in the club world, it's about producing shows mm -hmm. and building the audience for the show. And you hope that people that are um, you know fans of that show will, yeah. will be interested enough that they're going to find out. Oh well, I like this Tuesday night ten yeah. o'clock show with Bobcat. Maybe um, this Thursday show um, with the live jazz band will be up my alley as well. Yeah, yeah. Now you do you also develop a lot of shows? Does that cause a conflict in the booking of? Oh, I really think this is going to be a terrific show. It hasn't caught on yet, but I'm going to stick with them rather than, you know, three or four stand-ups that happen to catch my eye. Is there I mean, a conflict of interest? I guess is what I'm asking. I I don't think so. I mean, you know, something I struggle with sometimes because you know I'm still a performer, mm -hmm. um, and a producer. Like mm -hmm. I I get much more joy out of getting my hands dirty and like, mm -hmm. you know, coming up with a concept. You know this is going to be a jazz show and there's going to be a three piece jazz band and it's like really interactive. And, um, you know, I don't personally, you know, my name is on this club, mm -hmm. you know, you know, Jamie Flam is the booker of the improv, but there's certainly some shows that I will post on Facebook. Like you got to check this out mm -hmm. if I'm producing it or if it's like, here's a great lineup. And so I'm sure it's a conflict to some of the yeah. comics. I'm like, well, why didn't he ever say anything about the show that I yeah. 
Do you, do you feel that there's a distinction in your head between the shows you produce and the shows you book? Um, it seems like there'd be more ownership. You'd feel more ownership over oh, the shows. You're, yeah. More than ever. I mean, that's what I've been trying to do in the last year is there are certainly shows in the main room where I can look at a, a lineup I book. Um, and it's, it's not like a, a, there are certain shows like a, sh- a show I do called Band Jam where mm-hmm. I'm hosting mm-hmm. and there's a f- four piece band and we're rehearsing beforehand. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then there's now some shows where it's like, this isn't a show that I, I'm saying like I'm a producer on, but I booked every spot. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, at least comedy fans will, and friends and people like, oh, that's, my stamp is on it yeah. more than certain other shows where it's like, there might be a couple of people I love and then I have to put this person up for this agent and this person for this manager right. and this person has just, you know, been bugging me and this person has been bugging this person. So yeah. does that answer your question? Well, yeah, but it's, it's just, we went through an era well, probably early nineties or so where the club booker started getting into more and more management when mm-hmm. you get the Barry Katzes and, right, right. and Rick Messinas and those guys. Um, you don't, you don't manage comedians, but you no. do produce shows. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I just like to curate and really just produce experiences. Yeah. And, you know, obviously a club should be producing its own experience every night and that's mm-hmm. why you go and that's why you pay a premium to to show up and in this town, LA, especially, you know, because there's always a chance on any given night that, you know, last night Daniel Tosh popped in and Chris Hardwick and it's like, you pay for that, Mm -hmm. the chance for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little like the lottery. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you're at least going to get your money back, but you might also get this bonus. Exactly. And I mean, part of what I've been trying to do, I mean, is build more consistency on the main stage and more of our own shows that we have more control over. Um, because the more, the better the shows are, the more they're curated, the, the more of a chance of that drop in. Yeah. The biggest names want to be the, the hottest places right. and where their friends are. Yeah. So it, when that's also, I think starts coming in, you know, how much you encourage comics to hang out. Uh, I know you talk a lot about the, um, the entitlement, mm-hmm. um, which is something, you know, I'm always playing with because like I said, we don't have a huge venue. So unless the atmosphere is something where the comedians want to hang out, you don't re- you don't have your scene, you don't have your vibe, you don't have, you know, the the show or the club that you want to have. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are some comedians who go. I wouldn't even say entitlement. I would say more like ownership. You know, when you have a sudden have the comedians hanging out at the bar or talking during the show, or you know, uh, staying late or taking seats when there's audience there. Right. When the audience starts feeling a little like they're intruding on the comedian's party, it's a very very fine line where you want to be their friend. I know you also have walked over to comedians and say, Hey, you have to keep it down. Yeah. The, the audience is still the boss. Have, have, is that something you have to deal with? Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm lucky in that our bar is outside of the room. So that keeps it down. Mm-hmm. But How many yeah, seats are in the room? Uh, we sell 75. 75. So so it's, it's yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll squeeze in a, it, it's pretty close to, in fact, I'm such a comedy nerd. The square footage of the original improv on 44th street is almost the exact same square that footage really nerdy. That, that we have. I love oh it. yes. Yes. <laughs> I was, I was able to go to, when I looked at, told my parents I was looking at grad schools, I went to the improv on 44th once and I got to see Larry David and being in Buffalo, a lot of road comics would come through. And I was very lucky that those road comics at the time were Jay Leno and Brett Butler and these people. And I was at, at the improv on 44th and just so nervous. I was just standing there. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm at, you get up? I'm at the improv. No, no, of course not. No, of course um, not. No, 
And uh, Brett Butler said, Rick, what, what, you're okay. You, you seem like, I'm like, oh my God, this is the improv. Yeah. We're here. You know, Pryor's here. Carlin's here. And Brett Butler said, Rick, we're the stars now. <laughs> it's not going to get any bigger than these people you already know. That's hilarious. So I always need to keep that in mind. So in Boston, you know, I get, you know, 500, 600 of bales a mm-hmm. week. And that doesn't count all the emails I get from agents and managers in Boston. How many comics would you say there are? Uh, it's difficult to say only because you don't have that, you know, do you define a comedian as someone who does it full time or someone right. who gets paid for it? Um, but yeah, there's about four or 500 people that I would say would consider themselves comedians. And how many are bookable for a, a showcase show? For me, I usually put, we have a whole process in terms of how you get started with the yeah, club. What is your development system? Um, I, comedians, love following rules. If you give them rules, they're, they're willing to follow them. My booking process is very clear. We have what we call an information package. It's four or five pages that we either email someone or hand it to them, uh, sort of describes what our club is, what we look for, what the other clubs in Boston are, where the links are to find out where all the other stage time is. Um, I took that, uh, I think it was Chuckle Monkey uh, back in the 90s, <clears throat> excuse me, had a uh, 10 commandments of open mics about respecting the light and Mm -hmm. all that. So I put all that together into five or six pages and I say, read this over first. And if you think what you do fits us and what we do fits you, then I ask for one of two things. I prefer for you to come see a Wednesday or Sunday show because those are the five minute spots. Get an idea of the kind of show you'll be on. Because I always say, if you're, if you want to be president of the toothpaste company, try the damn toothpaste. Sure. Um, and then try a Wednesday and see a Friday or Saturday show where we're, where there are the paid slots, where it's longer sets to get an idea of what we're looking for, who we're looking to move up. And if you see those two shows and you feel comfortable, we book the next available thing, which probably about six weeks from then. Um, the other option is because of travel, you can't do that. Yeah, I'll look at a demo tape. But um, my pref, I always think if I, anytime I see a demo, I think, well, this guy's killing, but that club is different than mine. Or I go, oh, this guy's dying. Either way, right. <laughs> either way, I'm trying to find excuses not to book you if it's through a tape. Sure. Um, but I realize I'm in the minority there. But so that's, that process is very, very clear. And, um, you know, it, it's worked out. It's it, two things. One is it is that little speed bump that if someone is just saying, hey, my friends think I'm funny. We're not wasting each other's time. But it's also here's some information if you want to be a comedian we're interested in developing talent. You, you gotta be in this, you know, for, for real. Are you into management as well? No, no. no. Eugene Merman said, uh, he said, he said, don't ever even think about management. You'd be the worst manager ever. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, for the same reason I wasn't a very good comedian <laughs> because I'm always thinking, well, you're Jamie, you, you run the improv. I, I totally understand if I'm not good enough to play the improv. Yeah. I wouldn't even ask. That's probably not the best, Best thing for a manager to say, right, right. I have a client, not sure he's right for you. I understand. You know what? In fact, I'm just, I'm just going to tell him no. Yeah, yeah. You don't want Merman. Yeah. <laughs> so how much, um, so is there an open mic or does you go straight to a five minute set on this? You go straight, yeah, you go straight to five minute set. So Wednesdays and Sundays, we do 12 people doing five minutes each. Um, and we develop the talent through there. And generally uh, the two commandments are uh, make sure your material is original to you. And, uh, number two, don't go through the light. Mm-hmm. Don't go over. It. And if you do those two things, 
it's 99% of clubs will at least give you another shot. Mm -hmm. They'll at least say, Hey, you know what? This was a little edgy there, or you looked a little bad here, you know, or, you know, make sure you're not, you know, carrying your drink or whatever it is, whatever specific it is to the club. You do those two things. They're at least going to give you another shot. Will you give advice and or follow up with all 12 comedians that next day, or is it that night or a little bit? I host the shows on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Uh, so sometimes it's difficult to hear with whatever what else is going on. Yeah. Um, I'll make a couple comments. You know, I generally try to, you want to keep it, uh, as Abby was saying, um, you want to keep it general. When someone's coming right off stage, you want to keep it po positive. No matter how good or bad the set goes, you've got that adrenaline going. You're feeling good about yourself. No one wants to come off stage feeling really good about themselves and get like, hey, yeah, that bit in the middle, you, you didn't have a button to the end of the, the routine. Right. You know, so, you know, let everyone have that moment or two. And then, yeah, I might, I try to keep any advice very technical, you know, very, you know, the microphone was too close to your mouth. They couldn't see your expression or something like that, because I can tell you, you know, we can tell comics exactly how to be a very decent middle mm -hmm. act. You know, you, you it, louder on the punchlines, uh, step forward on punchline, you know, be more animated, be more energetic. We can tell people exactly how to be a decent generic comedian but nobody gets into comedy because they want to be right. in the middle somewhere. What makes a performer, what really gets someone out is how and where they break the rules. And you don't want to be stepping on that. You don't want to be pulling the lanes. And I said, no one wants to be the, the booker who told Stephen Wright to pick up the pace. Right. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in your time, um, in the last 20 years, like, is there a stable of comics that have, you've watched grow and come out that, um, you know, you hang your hat on that you've helped develop? Oh, many. I would say the the few I take real pride in would be like Eugene Merman and Mike Kaplan and Aaron Judge. Um, there, there's some people who were different and unique enough that they weren't getting stage time at other clubs or other places. And the studio, the comedy studio became a place where, you know, I was, oh, you're on to something. Uh, Zach Sherwin, um, MC Mr. Napkins, uh, we'll be seeing him later tonight. Um being open to this person's not doing things exactly the way everyone else is, but that's what makes it special. Yeah. So there, there's a number of those. Um, Ahmed Barucha is coming out. It's, it's always generational. Um, and I'm very, very proud of that, that I think that's what a comedy club needs to be. Absolutely. Is to have that, that core, that place that the comedian knows they can show up and not get dissed and not, you know, they can make a mistake, but they don't want to. Mm hmm you know, they, they have a feeling of, oh, someone is allowing me to use their home. I, I think of the comedy club as, you know, people say, oh, you develop all this talent out of the place. I think I just have the keys to the gym. Whoever shows up and lifts the most weights is going to be the strongest. So there's a lot of comedians who have come through. Uh, Chris Fleming is incredibly talented. Um, a lot of people you, you haven't heard of. And then, you know, there are some who, you know, you have heard of. Do you get you know? drop-ins? We get drop-ins. Um, Adam Ray set us up with uh, Sandra Bullock. Oh, wow. Which was was such a weird experience because we were, we would get calls from like People Magazine a week later saying, uh, when Sandra Bullock was there, would you say that she was sitting near anyone? Did she seem to have an interest in anyone trying to get some sort of gossip was she to be to able to say so-and-so? No, no. She Adam Ray was in the movie with her and they were filming in Boston. So she just wanted to see comedy. Yeah. yeah oh. So she, she went to see Adam perform. She literally just dropped into... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and when Grown Ups, uh, Grown Ups Two, I think it was, was filming in the area, David Spade stopped in. Um, 
But yeah, we get a we get a lot of drop-ins. The really big names, it's usually through their management or mm -hmm. something. But uh, it's it's a lot of fun when you have to tell someone with big movie star credits. I'm sorry, we have to be done by ten o'clock because the kids have to dance. Right, right. So we'll we'll let you do a few minutes, but have have to be done by nine. You have to be here by eight thirty. What has been the the biggest biggest luminary or, or name that you've had to tell about this dance situation? Um, David Spade probably. Um, Jim Norton usually likes to drop in and do 10 minutes at our place before recording his special at the theater down the street. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, there's folks like that. Gary Goldman is a regular, Gary Goldman actually started out, uh, he took my, how to do stand up comedy class really? in, in 19, whatever, um, before I even opened the club. What is your take? I mean, I have a, a seemingly unique take on, on stand up classes and that I think that they can be actually really great. Yeah. How do you feel about teaching or do you still teach? No, classes? no. I stopped when I opened the club um, because I feel that, that, that I felt was a conflict of interest. Like, how can I say, you know, you're just, your stuff's not um, energetic enough to play my club when I just had you in class saying I liked your energy. Right. right. You know, so um, I purposely avoid any of that. Um, when someone has a class and they want me to talk at it, I'm thrilled to do that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I think stand-up classes can be very good. My first recommendation is see the teacher perform or whatever they do so that, you know, if you're, if you're an improv person and you have a writing based teacher, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. You know, have an idea of where the teacher is coming from, what they do. Um, and I think as long as it's kept to some of the basics of here's some writing exercises you can do, uh, notice you know this video notice you know when the when it's based on the technical things right i think it can be very helpful but yeah you're you know i'm not i don't mind improv i'm so a stand-up guy but the problem i see with a lot of the improv classes and such is all of improv is based on yes and mm -hmm. you're finding agreement and you can see it as soon as an improv actor walks on a stand-up stage their eyes start moving around they're looking for agreement. They'll say something about the room or someplace. They're looking for common ground. They're looking for the yes and. I find, I think the best stand-up comedians are like, no, but. A good stand-up comic will just come up and be staring in one spot and just be, you know, how are you all doing today? And the audience will say, good. And you go, no, it's a terrible day and here's why. When I, I was it. driving here, this happened. Uh, stand-up is just a single point of view and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And improv is all trying to to water that down somewhat. That's interesting. I've never heard that that take. Well, that's one of the big reasons I want to get on this podcast, so that so I could it, say that. It's and all then about from denying. Now on, from now on, happening. everyone has to give me credit for coming up with that. <laughs> is that the no but comedy guy? Yeah, that could be taken the wrong way. <laughs> um, so well, you're, you are when you're a stand up, you are in charge of everything. You're president and CEO of your own company. You're in charge of the marketing. You're in charge of the development. You're in charge of the research. Uh, you, you have to take control of, of it all. Um, approaching you about playing here is part of the marketing department. Having an act. When, you, when your marketing department gets you the gig, now that's the sales. Now mm -hmm. you've got to perform well enough there. So you really do need to take control of all of it. And we've all seen people who are terrific at the marketing who haven't really done the development. Absolutely. So I first heard of the studio. And we talked about this beforehand, mm -hmm. but um, was the the Todd Berry, um, yeah. almost heaven uh, mm -hmm. album that he recorded there? Yeah, and to, to this day, one of my favorite 
comedy oh, albums great. of all time. Um, but you had a, a, a funny story about a, a uh, what you think could have been a deleted yeah. scene. Well, th- that I wish we could do more. Um, as I said, we rent our space, so we can't get in there until about seven o'clock. We have to be out by 10 o'clock. So we can't really hang microphones for sound. I would love to have that permanently set up. I'd love to have monitors. I'd love to do all these sort of things. Literally, the pictures on the wall have to come down and we put everything away. So it looks like we were never there. Who's in the building before you? Uh, well, yeah, I can get there a little bit early and set up. I set up the tables and chairs before each show. But um, it's it's closed off. So the bar staff's not there until it's time for the bar to open. Right. So Comedy Central, Jack over Comedy Central, they're not wild. We've recorded a few CDs, but they're generally not wild about the audio quality. Because, again, we have to hang the microphones for that night and have everything down the second that show is over. Mm-hmm. So when the Todd Barry or some or Gary Goldman is recorded at our place, there's been three or four. It's really, it's really technically, I have to tell them, okay, yeah, you can do it, but there's all this extra stuff. Um, Todd was really, really great that he wanted to do it there and it turned out well. Um, but we had all these, you know, we did two shows, uh, which again, required some bending over backwards with the Hong Kong staff. And they were like, okay, but you have to be done. Yeah, all right, you, you can go to 11, but you have to be done by then. So some, a guy who, he had, he had a couple of drinks, but mostly he was just an enthusiastic fan. One of those people who laughs a little too loud at the recording, you know, punctuates the laughs with, yeah, you're right. You know, that sort of thing. And we, we had to send a couple of people over to say, you know, can you keep it down? And he kept talking. And finally we're like, okay, well just, if you could come out with us, which is an old uh, booking thing, a uh, old club manager thing, if you ever need. Back in the 80s, I saw a manager do this. He walks over to a guy and says, um, there's six guys causing a problem. He calls, picks out the alpha male, the biggest guy. He says, let, let me have just a word with you outside. Gets him outside and says, um, you've now been thrown out. We're not letting you back in. And then when and found the next biggest guy and says, your buddy wants to talk to you. And just slowly took each one of them out of the room. I thought, what a great way to avoid that conf- confrontation. Your buddy wants to talk to you. Yeah. That's yeah. good advice. Yeah. <clears throat> so we got, uh, we had, you know, two or three bouncers, you know, some comedians and staff go over to the guy and say, you know, really, we have to, you know, we're recording. We got, we have to get you out. And Todd uh, narrated it and said, three of the biggest men I've ever seen have just walking, walked over. They're picking up this guy and they're dragging him out. And then the guy tripped on the steps. We're on the third floor. He trips down the steps. So you're just hearing thump, 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 And then there's a pause. And uh, one of the bouncers walks out in the doorway, throws his arms big open wide and says, it's all right. He's okay. <laughs> and, and I thought that would be the perfect, perfect hidden track on Todd's album. But you're worried. Well, what if that guy recognizes himself and, you know, I'm on your CD and that sort of stuff. Yeah. You don't want to get sued for yeah. that. Um, well, I love the sound on that recording, by the way. Yeah. I think it's perfect. I, I think, um, you know, the, the, the timber mm-hmm. of Todd's voice. Yeah. I don't know, uh, music, uh, audio speak, <laughs> but I'm going to say timber, yeah. um, timbra, anyone in the hmm. room, timbra. Um, hmm. but also the, the intimacy of the audience having never yeah. been there. I can, and, and even, um, Todd talking about, all right, um, they're dropping, dropping the checks, yeah. um, at this Chinese restaurant. 
it really um, painted a picture having never been there. So it's, it's cool having listened to that album for so long to have. Yeah, been, it's a nice square yeah. room without any pillars or anything. So it even with a small audience, you feel you feel in, intimate and you feel everybody is on you. I love it. So all right, let's get to the the the, the good stuff. Saying yes and saying no. Ah. How do you do it? When do you do it? Why do you do it? Um, well, like I said, I don't have to do much of it because it's, as I said, a showcase format. So everyone's doing five minutes. So there's a little bit of, okay, you, uh, you know, let's get you on once a month now instead of every other week. Um, once you're doing regular spots with us, then we have some people host and some people move up. The whole process for me is really geared towards getting you to the point where you get your ass out of Boston. Uh, that you you're ready to go to New York or to LA so that when someone says, Oh, I'm a Boston comic. It's like, well, we know he's got 40 minutes and something really unique to do or to say. So it's a, it's a lot of that. Um, that's just a, a lot of it is me having that process there that I can say it was a five minute set and you did crowd work. I love crowd work. I have no, nothing against crowd work, but if I see a comedian open with crowd work on a five minute set, mm-hmm. If it doesn't go well, you don't have time to, to right, close, out, yeah, yeah. to open strong, close strong, and do something new in the middle. So we get a lot of people winning contests and doing all that thing because on television because we really drill those short sets into people. Um, that's, that's awesome. You recently handed over the reins to someone else that's managing the club now, right? Yeah, but I've had to take back a oh, lot of that. That's all happened in the last <laughs> yeah. few months. Yeah, in the last few months. Um, and it really wasn't a question of the, of the bookings. It was that I was stepping back more and saying, okay, I've been here 20 years. I'm 55. I probably don't have my finger on the pulse of everything. Um, but what you're, what you are used to. Yeah. Now you have the regulars. I know you've talked to this with uh, Adam at the store and now some of the regulars who are very good acts who aren't getting booked as much as they used to because other people are in there. And some of that's seen as favoritism. Um, so yeah, I've I've sort of taken back a little bit of the reins and said, you know, the the overall vibe of the club is the important thing. What do you want that vibe to be? Um, I want it to be the that comedy club I wish I had. Well, which I did mm-hmm. have back when I started out. The original Comedy Connection in Boston was a little two hundred seat space, low ceilings, and you just saw all these terrific people and. Comics were welcome to hang out, but you knew you were playing at the big playground. You know, you knew that you were on the same stage. That's what I love about a showcase format. Every comedian I tell, you're on the same stage with a Gary Goldman or a Todd Barry or a Eugene Merman. And the same night in front of the same audience at the same time, you don't have any excuse for, oh, the audience wasn't that great or, right. oh, I was off. This is, this is a chance for everyone to play on that same playground. Uh, so that's really the atmosphere I want. And Mike Birbiglia worked out a lot of sleepwalk with me um, at the club. That's, to me, that's the important thing as comedians. There's a sweet spot for a developing comedian between, say, like 22 and 28, where you know you're on your own, you know you're an individual, you know you're separate and you're different from everybody else, but you still want that team to be on, you still want that support, you want that feeling not that I'd ever compare what we do to the military, but there's that feeling of civilians don't really understand what it's like. I was out at the, the uh, Johnny Carson Comedy Festival in, out in Norfolk, Nebraska. 
It was terrific. I was talking to Renee, who books some of the improvs there in um, uh, Florida, and Bert Haas at uh, Zany's in Chicago. And we never get to work together. We never meet each other. We're all bookers. The only time we know each other is through you and your podcast. <laughs> so just having those stories of, yeah, yeah, this guy trashed the the condo, or how come you have a condo? Don't you, you know, don't you do this? Um, that's now I feel, oh, I'm part of that community. I've tried to build with the studio is that comedy community for those comedians who, like I said, want to step out and want to be different, but want that little bit of support that says, you know, Hey, you're going to get a good audience. You're going to get respect. If you want to put in the work, this is how you do it. That's very inspiring. Huh. If I was in Boston, I'd be with you every night. <laughs> Speaking mm-hmm. of Johnny Carson, by the way, mm-hmm. we have to, uh, celebrate your wardrobe. Ah, my wardrobe. I was in, I was at that comedy festival in Norfolk, Nebraska, and they did a big story on this guy who wears Johnny Carson suits. Uh, Johnny Carson had a clothing line, so it's not his suit. The story, uh, was it on you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> yes. Um, and you're wearing a Johnny Carson suit right now. I am. Okay. And I do pretty much every night at the comedy club, at, at the comedy studio. Um, Johnny Carson had a clothing line. So it's like, getting Martha Stewart towels and saying, look, I'm, you know, Martha Stewart. Um, but they were made in Buffalo in the seventies and eighties and a few blocks from where I grew up. So I found one online and it was really cheap. And then I found another one. I said, Oh, it's from my hometown, Johnny Carson comedy. And it just, you know, I now have about 36 suits and wear a different one. And some of them are just outrageous. And I love that. Wait, is this, this has got to be seventies, right? This is, yeah, this one is probably, yeah, yeah, about 1980s, somewhere in there. Oh, 80s. Yeah. Really? Late, late 70s, early 80s, yeah. And yeah. so you have 30, how many? Yeah, about three dozen, about 36. And you just rotate them in and out. Yep. Yep. Got some for winter, some for, for spring. Uh, as I said, now that I'm older, I'm 55, I own the club, it's going well, I don't have to care what anybody thinks anymore. Yeah, fuck them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I love hosting the show. I do it very much in a, a Carson serve style, I realized that I'm not that good a comedian or I would, I would have made it, I would be headlining the shows. Um, instead I'm a very good host. I see the host as, and that's why I always have a problem with clubs where the host just does five minutes and then gives out, you know, he's not one of the comedians. He Mm -hmm. tells what the specials are sort of thing. I think the host is that person that's between the comedian and the audience. Absolutely. I mean, it's historically, the host was the headliner. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you've seen that more. Um, and we have that here too. And we have like, um, we had Brian Posehn and friends mm-hmm. a few weeks ago and Brian opens the show and it brings people up. But what I found um, for a lot of our shows, um, especially once we started, you know, getting promoters in the last 15 years, mm-hmm. when I first got here, it was like, it would be like you'd throw the hosting bone to the, the least mm-hmm. experienced person on the lineup, which is just not how it should be. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to go up. They're not going to set the best tone and they don't know how to read the room in between of the comic bombs or does a particularly yeah. insane set, how to, you know, manage getting back into yeah. And I think having you here all the time or me at my club all the time, I think that's, that's a real key because we both start out doing comedy. Um, and most of the really good bookers now, most of the good rooms, the comedian started or the producer started as a comedian when you're there all the time. It does feel like your home. You do have a sense of this is our place. So you want a host who's going to not just present this product. You want a host who's going to say, welcome to our home, you know, respect the, 
respect the staff. Well, one know. thing I envy about you, um, like I've talked about endlessly on this podcast, is the politics of this place, that there's so many shows that I don't have the control I would wish I had, or it's like an outside produced show, and so they're booking half the lineup and the hosts and this and that, versus mm-hmm. you, know, yeah. you know, six nights a week at the studio, you get to... So what, what's the, what's the, um, incentive to work with producers and shows? Is, is it more of a guaranteed draw or is it, uh, in, in just LA, one less show you have to book? In Los Angeles. I mean, back in the day, Bud booked every lineup every night, mm-hmm. but I think it's probably almost 20 years ago after the boom. Um, I think in the mid nineties, late nineties was when I think the clubs in LA all had to start, you know, finding, you know, alternative ways mm-hmm. to get people out. Um, to the clubs every night. So they started, that's when you started seeing like these theme shows and outside producers. And um, so when I first took over the club, there were, you know, almost every single night was outside produced shows. And one of our biggest shows every week is called comedy juice. And it's generally packed. It's Wednesday nights. It's a great show, but I don't, I do not book it. Yeah. Monday nights is Mo better Monday. I don't book that. Um, And we still rely, you know, in in this town, if you don't have hugely famous name, Mm -hmm or two or three, um, or, you know, like I said before, like a produced show that people know is going to be amazing, even if they don't know who's on it. Yeah. There's a lot of fight for the entertainment dollar here. There's, you you can go down the street and see a name. Well, yeah. And then not only because there's 15 amazing comedy shows every night, but it's LA and there's a thousand other things that people are doing. Yeah. I thought there was a really interesting time in comedy when you had the improv the store and the factory were the legendary places that everybody knew, but UCB and uh, meltdown nerdist that sort of stuff creatively sort of took over. And I, I found that really interesting because I, I thought to myself, how, how did they let this whole reputation slide? So now you had all tourists coming here to look for, Oh, Jerry Seinfeld might be here instead of, agents coming here to see that. And this is clearly before your time. It seems like all three clubs have started working more towards, all right, let's do something a little bit more creative. Let's develop shows that could go somewhere um, because they saw the success of those smaller clubs. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like um, in in the last few years, I mean, my mission has been to eliminate the outside produced shows. I still rely heavily Mm -hmm. on them. But at the very least, um, you know, by and large, they're producers or promoters that I like working with. They have good taste. So if we are giving spots to other people, mm-hmm. you know, they're helping bring some, you know, firepower and some good names. And then I could fill in the gaps with, you know, big names if mm-hmm. I can, but up and comers that I like. Yeah. Um, but it's still tough in this town. Oh, yeah. yeah. And especially what? like here, like, you know, I think, you know, at a higher level, because, you know, this, this company books, you know, 30 right. clubs around the country. I think oftentimes people um, above me think of this as just another road room mm-hmm. and they don't understand the. Well, and I think they, they should, uh, if my, my, my advice is, um, <laughs> well, I think this is the flagship. This is the, all the retailers now do all their sales online, but they need to have that brick and mortar, that flagship, that thing that says, Oh, this is the place. Mm-hmm. And I, for me anyways, that's what the improv is. It's, People are taking pictures of the mural outside. You're sitting at the bar thinking, well, you know, who else has sat here? I think it's really, really important that this room and this building has that living, breathing, you know, that it's a museum, but still something that's moving forward. And it's, it's really important that it's here. 
Absolutely. I mean, and to me, I, I, I didn't realize because, you know, when I started here in the lab mm-hmm. and I'd come from the indie scene, I was booking a, a room called the Westside Eclectic, now the Westside mm-hmm. Comedy Theater in Santa Monica. So I came from the indie world and the alternative world. And so I started booking the lab, which was at that point, just this small room that was kind of mm-hmm. you know, rotting away. And there's a couple shows, but not much. Well, I know the Walsh brothers started at my of place. Course. Oh, the Walsh brothers. So, yes. so sometimes I want, sometimes I want to hear you tell that story from your, from your side of the, well, that was before uh, the my time. Oh, okay. I that when I first started in the room, that was the, it was within a year or two of that happening mm-hmm. with, with Dave Chappelle showing up at the improv mm-hmm. and the Walsh brothers kind of wooed him into mm-hmm. the small room instead of the big room. And he ended up doing, I think three or four hours. Yeah. And I think, you know, they didn't sell drinks in the room at the time. So from a business perspective, it was a disaster because yes. you have a, a room next yeah. door where you can have 200 people. And but instead I think 50 or 60 or yeah. people got like the, the best show ever. Yeah. Oh, I've made so many missteps like that. Uh, Harris Whittles, great comedian started out as an Emerson student. And that's one of the nice things about my club with all the colleges in there. Yeah. We get some people who go on to become terrific comedians. We also have um, Adam Genovese is now an agent at ICM. Yeah. Alicia Yaffe is a terrific uh, uh, actor on, um, on, um, I think it's Silicon Valley, but um, it's nice to see how those people develop. The Harris Whittles, uh, the advice I gave him, I came back after after the show. I came back to the dress room and I was just livid. I said, "Yo, that what you did out there tonight that that was an embarrassment to me, to you. It was it was dirty. I can't. I'm not going to have that here. That was just completely wrong." Um, and Harris Whittles, who went to write Parks and Rec, and is just a brilliant, was a brilliant, brilliant performer, who just passed away. Uh, said to me, I, I wasn't on tonight. <laughs> I said, no, but it was someone a lot like you. And you, you take this as a lesson. <laughs> Who was it? I don't know. I just, I just saw someone on stage. He looked like one, one of those kids from Emerson. I said the very first time he ever went on stage, Pete Holmes uh, was on stage and he brought, brought eight of his high school friends and he, he just had no idea what he was doing. And it was just terrible. And I said to him, uh, I'm not saying you're, you know, I'm, the material wasn't that bad. The delivery wasn't that bad, but I can't, if someone really isn't ready, I'll say, I can't look at you for another six months, go take a class or, you know, do whatever you need to do. But, you know, I'll look at you in another six months. And then Pete went to college. So that's how he started in Chicago because I had the the insight to say, yeah, that Pete Holmes kid, I don't think he's got it. So you can take full credit for all I, of the success. I can, t- I can take <clears throat> Full credit for making the first mistake with Pete's career. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rick, I'm curious. Do you have any theories you want to talk about? Oh, I've, I've got so many. Just every comedian should just come to come to my club and say, hey, let's have a drink after the show. Um, I think every single comedian thinks they are 20% better than they really are. Because when you're on stage, everybody is, the audience is facing you and laughing towards you. So you're hearing 10% more laughter and seeing people smile than you would if you're not on stage. And if you're backstage or in the back of the room watching a comedian, the laughter is facing away from you and going in the other direction. So every time you watch a comedian, you're thinking, I'm better than him. By like 20% a good 20%. less funny. Yeah. Yeah. The, the person I'm watching is 20% less funny. That creates a 40% switch. Exactly. That's why every comedian goes... How come that guy got the festival and I didn't? Oh my God, I'm, this is... I'm clearly 40% better than him. This is a game changer, the 40% theory. The 40% theory is going to change how I interact with comics. 
Yeah. And I think that's, you know, because all the comedians feel, oh, I had a really good set. How many times has a comedian come off stage saying, hey, I thought that went pretty well. And you're thinking, ooh, no, no, it did not. I mean, it's like, like, how did it go last night? I slayed. Yeah. Is that your definition of slayed? Yeah. Yeah. Or they were smiling. I didn't hear them smile. <laughs> um, well, Rick, this has been a really fun conversation. Oh, I've, I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. And just your uh, talk, uh, Jordan Brady with the uh, just set a deadline. And I've just, I've picked up so many great, uh, great tips and, and great things. I, I recommend this podcast to everyone and 90% of them accidentally get the Christian podcast gatekeepers. Oh, what's that all about? Th- and think I'm messing with them. What is the gatekeepers? There's, an, there's another podcast. that's a Christian podcast about getting into through the gates of heaven. So if you do the wrong search, you end up with that. Oh, I got to check so that they, out. So they think it's just the, the booker messing with them saying, yeah, if you want to become a comedian, see, see what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can do for you. Note to Andrew, why don't we um, reach out and see if we can get them uh, on the show? <laughs> we have the gatekeepers themselves. Um, and I had a quick shout to Sean Merrick, who's in the room. Oh, yes. Who uh, yeah. helped facilitate this. He's from, from Boston. Yeah. Sean was one of the people who started out doing comedy at my club and, uh, and help put this together. And Sean now runs uh, this network, yeah. the Sideshow Network. So um, thanks for facilitating this amazing conversation. Do you have any final thoughts uh, to impart to comedians or anyone? I would say, uh, hey, you know what? You're president and CEO of your own company. Get get your company in order. And you may be Sean becoming you know, a producer and running things. You could become an agent. You could be... It's the path isn't necessarily going to be I'm Brian Regan or st- selling out theaters and making it as a standup. But if you if you work hard and you're cool as fuck, the path is going to lead you somewhere. Yes, and just to to illuminate that real quick, I, I when you were talking about it earlier, because I think I don't think that's necessarily a new concept of you know you should be you know Rick Jenkins uh, Inc. Mm-hmm. Um, you know every comic should look in this, but you really dived into like the the marketing and the development and really look into what it takes as a company and all these things that you need to be doing for yourself Mm -hmm. and all the departments within that was really interesting. So if you've made it this far, you've already heard that, but rewind back and enjoy. (laughs) Um, Well, you know how I end the show. Do it with me. No, no, no. It's all you. I've got, uh, I have this on my, on my computer. I just hit it every morning. I, this, why not have a cool moment where we both say it together? All right. Uh, Work on your craft. (laughs) Do you have it memorized? No. (laughs) See, you didn't put the work in. (laughs) Work on your craft. Work on your craft endlessly. endlessly. Be a professional. Professional, Be undeniable. undeniable, And and be be cool cool as as fuck fuck always. always. I remember that part. Um, I believe it. Rick, thank you. If you're in Boston, where can people find you? Uh, It's thecomedystudio.com. I have to go. We tried comedystudio.com. Someone bought it and tried to sell it to us. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's uh, thecomedystudio.com. We're in Harvard Square, directly across from Harvard University. We're there six days a week. And if you just want to hang out, I'll be there. Is there a, a gatekeeper uh, discount? <laughs> and gatekeeper, people drop gate, the name? Gate, gatekeepers don't go to shows anymore. Now they just check the videos. No, I'm talking if, if someone s- listens to the episode oh, and they get like a... Sure. I'll get... Uh, I put you on the spot. What do I, I have? I'll have a CD or something for you. All right, great. Free CD yeah. if you drop this podcast. There you go. All right. Thanks, Rick. Thanks so much. Bye.
For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Stevens, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab. Welcome to Gatekeeper. I'm your host, Jamie Flam. Great to be here. Nope, why'd I do that? Okay.